Hello, Aaron. Hello, Kevin. Welcome, everybody. This is VW's Office Hours, a podcast focused on venture deals. Be smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. The seminal book on doing a venture deal. It's a must read for any founder. It's great for startup lawyers, great for VCs. Anyone really who's in the space who wants to understand understand how venture deals work, this book is incredibly helpful. So today we're talking about chapter five, control terms of the term sheet. We're going to break it down into four sections. Board of directors, protective provisions, drag along agreement, and conversion. So Aaron, let's start by blending this in with what we talked about last week, chapter four, which was economic terms of the term sheet. Or actually, last week we had two podcasts, right? We broke up chapter four into two. But we went through economic terms of the term sheet. So Aaron, when if you're a founder and you're trying to understand the difference between the economic terms and the control terms, what does that mean? Well, the the economic terms are, you know, the price and um, liquidation preference and all the uh, pieces of the term sheet that I guess relate to money, valuation right. being a huge one. Right. You know, it's interesting because you say price. Well, you can't build price without valuation. And people generally think of price and valuation as two different things, and understandably they are. But they're completely related, and you can't have one without the other. And if you tell me the valuation and the number of shares, I can tell you the price. And if you tell me the price and the number of shares, I can tell you the valuation. So recognize that valuation and price, while two different numbers, they really represent the same thing. Right. But back to control terms of the term sheet. So Aaron, okay, that's economic terms. What do control terms mean? Control terms are just, you know, the pieces of the term sheet that relate to how the company is going to be operated. Yeah, and that's what people need to understand. We talk about control. There's Everyone automatically defaults to voting control. Well, voting control can mean a lot of different things. There's board control. There's control by different classes for different uh, things or different rights and preferences tied to certain classes of units. There's control for common, control for preferred, controlled for control for certain activities, right? And control, you know, as it relates to, you know, having a certain amount of voting power that's needed to maybe veto something. That's right. So a certain amount or the uh, the veto rights is there. Mentioned. Yeah. Control doesn't have to be 50.1%. Right. It doesn't have to be positive control. It can be negative control. It can also be uh, super majority. Right? A lot of people think that majority carries, not necessarily. You will set different levels of consent that are required for different activities. Now, before we get into the control terms of the term sheet, I want to talk for a second about the three levels of management inside any startup, really any organization, because a lot of people don't understand this. The first level of management is day-to-day operations, and that's generally performed or overseen by the CEO or the president. The board and the shareholders don't need to be involved for those things. Those can be things like hiring and firing your basic employees. Key employees will probably be, or high-level employees will probably be um, hired by the board. But also the CEO or president might set pricing. They might, you know, short-term strategy. Uh, We need to tap into our line of credit today to help cover payroll. We are going to buy this office furniture. We are going to invest, not invest, but, you know, purchase these the software to use or these this uh, computer equipment or hardware there's tons of day-to-day decisions that are made without the influence or the watchful eye of the board or the shareholders so your day-to-day activity is controlled by the c levels of the organization 
The next level control, which is general strategy, strategic vision for the company, that usually comes from the board. And the board exerts this control in a couple of ways. First of all, the CEO, especially as you get to later stage companies, the CEO is usually hired by the board and the CEO generally reports to the board. The president may as well if those are two different people. Um, the C-level executives may report to the board. Usually they'll just report to one C-level. But So that's one. Uh, compensation for executives can be generally determined by the board. Options for executives generally determined by the board. When to raise the next round is generally going to be at least suggested by the board. Usually has to be approved by the board first, then maybe the shareholders. The board might decide on large financings or large uh, borrowings. You know, let's just say the company wants to take on a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. Probably need board approval for that. The board may make recommendations on M&A activity spinning out certain assets, changing the name of the business, changing the uh, constitution of the business, whether it's a corporation or an LLC. The board may be able to prove some of those things, but most likely you have to go to the shareholders. But the board would be the one leading the charge in those things. And then you get to the ultimate level of control, which doesn't come up all that often, but it's for generally what's known as fundamental decisions, or Delaware calls them major decisions. And those decisions are being made by the shareholders. And those decisions generally include raising additional capital um, because it's not the raising capital that they're deciding on. It's issuing new shares, selling the business, selling either all the assets or the business or agreeing that or having the shareholders agree to sell their shares in the business, which would be selling their equity in the business, changing the entity type from an LLC to a corporation or a corporation to an LLC usually requires shareholder approval and winding down, dissolving the business or filing for bankruptcy. Those are, again, known as your fundamental or major decisions. So there's three levels of control of any organization, your day-to-day -day activities, your board activities, and then your fundamental activities. Note, board activities, as applied to an LLC, may be known as the managers. The board there may be known as the managers or the board of managers. Whenever we do have an LLC that's going the traditional startup route, we just call the board of managers. You're just calling it board, and it's all the same. But anyways, I wanted you to understand. Now, let's talk about board of directors. So, Aaron, tell me about the term sheets that we see at C-level and A-level. What do the board of directors provisions generally look like? I mean, usually it's going to be two founders and an investor. It's going to be three. Why is that important that there's two founders? Um, typically, most of our clients have more than one founder, which is, I think, most of the time advisable to have have multiple founders. Um, and then in terms of representation on the board, you want, you know, if you have an investor that's asking for a board seat, um, you know, automatically that means you're going to go to three, assuming you have, you're starting off with no board, um, you know, no official board. You're going to go to three because you need an odd number in case there's, you know, a tie. Um, but in, in that situation, you want to have two sort of what I would deem friendlies, uh, and so you'll have the two founders plus then the investor. Yeah, so two is going to be greater than one if you get into a voting situation. Your comment about no official board is interesting because I think you're you're right there, Aaron. Most companies, when they start, they don't organize a formal board for a lot of reasons. Cumbersome. You don't want to have additional cooks in the kitchen. Right. Now, Usually it's just the main founder. Well, and officially you have a board. But Correct. You have officially, yeah. with as you file your documents with the state of Delaware, you're going to have a board. Usually it's just one founder. If you do have two founders, which we see from time to time, 
that's fine. Yeah, but now you have two people on your board. So how do you make a decision if the two of you aren't aligned? So if there are going to be two co-founders and you're both going to be initial board members, make sure you have some sort of deadlock provision or a third person to go to and cast a tie-breaking vote. But once you formalize the board, i.e. bring on an investor and actually create a board plan, you're going to have board meetings, you might issue options to your board members. Once you formalize this, uh, typically you're going to go to three, maybe five. I think it's best to keep these things as small as possible yeah, early I think, on. I think at the at the seed level, it'll be three. Um, if you're at five at the seed level, you know maybe it means... You know, you've been operating for a long time and haven't really needed to raise the money. Um, but yeah, I think five is much more common at the A level. I agree. That's generally what we see. Five is fine. I would prefer three, especially for seed rounds. Five is just too many. It's too many people to track down for meetings and you have to notify them of things. And perhaps you're covering their expenses to fly in for meetings. Well, and especially when you get into, you know, if you have a five person board plus then observers, then you're just, the table is very crowded. But once you do get to five, pretty good chance that you got at least two investors on there. Now, one thing I thought was real interesting in the book was a comment that the guys, Jason uh, Mendelson and Brad Feld said, we are of the opinion that the founders are better off not controlling the board. This is a really interesting point because from our perspective, we're generally company side. We want the companies to control the board as long as possible. The investors are investing in you. They're investing in the founders. They should have the confidence that the founders are going to be able to succeed or carry out the vision in which the investors invested. But these guys make the comment that maybe it's not so bad to give up control early on, which I think is helpful. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it. Now, later stage, yeah, later stage is not so much giving board control to investors, but it's keeping it independent, right? Keeping it so there's generally... Aaron mentioned you get to five, you generally have two founders, two investors, and one independent or one industry. But early on, we generally advise our clients to main, to keep control for as long as they can. That said, if you have good investors giving up board control, not seeding it, but giving it up so that it's two, two, and an independent is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I think this all ties back to um, a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about vetting your investors. Mm -hmm. I mean, you should be comfortable with your investors to the level of, you know, giving up control of the board in exchange for something. You know, obviously you're giving up board seats usually in connection with a, a round of financing. And, you know, if if you are on such um not bad terms, but untrusting terms yeah, with your nice right, with your board members or with your investors that you're worried about giving them control of the board then I think there's some fundamental issues underlying the situation. So everyone needs to recognize that as a board member, as a director, you have a fiduciary duty to the company, not to yourself, not to your LPs if you're the investors, but to the company to do what's best for the company. So hopefully people are going to be aligned. Now, it doesn't mean that all decisions are going to be made by unanimous consent. A lot of times, founders and board members just see things differently, and that's okay. But if you have a well-operating and a well-constructed board, then what's best for the company should come out of this. So our counsel is generally at the seed level. You should and you should want, you should be able to and you should want to maintain control of your board. Once you get to A level, if you can maintain control, great. If not, not a big deal. 
not it's not uncommon at all to go to a two two one type situation. And then once you get to a B or a C round or a real large A round, you might be losing control. You might have one large VC firm with two, another large VC firm with two, um, and then three of your own. Or you could have, you know, two, like a, a two, a three, three, and an independent. I mean, there's a lot of different constructs. And it's okay to lose control of your board. Um, you know, I think that founders often um, feel like if they lose control of the board, they're automatically going to be replaced as the CEO. And that's not true. I think that there are plenty of examples that we see on a daily basis of founders that have lost control of their board, who have you know given up control of their board to investors, and they're still running the company. It is not easy to find another you as a founder. So even if you have a bad quarter, or if you guys miss a mark, or if there's, we have to pivot. It's not as if the board's going to be able to say, well, let's just go replace this founder. This will be easy to do. I mean, how many other people are you going to be able to find who are this invested in the company, who are willing to work for this little? It just doesn't happen. Who understand the business and who understand the business that well. It just doesn't happen. If you're a really crappy CEO, then maybe you should be replaced. And I do feel we have clients who hang on for too long, right? Sometimes ultimately to the downfall of the business. And even if you're not a really crappy CEO, even if you were a great founding CEO of this company and you took it, you know, beyond your wildest imagination, there comes a point sometimes in a company's life cycle where maybe the founding CEO, one of the founders, is not the right person to be leading the company anymore. And that's not, you know, that's not saying anything negative about that person. That's just you got the company to a point where it's time to bring on somebody outside. And the founders who understand that, who can recognize that, are some of the best that we have. There's a point a little um, – there's a point in this chapter that comes up a little later, Aaron, where these guys, uh, Feld and Mendelssohn, bring up, make sure your attorney's working for the company and not for the founder. And that's something we tell our clients all the time. We represent the company. Now, early stage when the founder owns 80% of the company, yeah, whatever the founder wants to do is going gonna, is gonna to go because they have the majority – they control the board. They control common. So the founder's making all the decisions. But once you bring on investors, if you come to us, you say, hey, my investors are saying this, but I'm thinking this. Our reaction is going to be, well, let's talk about what's best for the company. Let's sit down and have that conversation. Uh, I also want to talk for a second about board observers because they bring that up on page 68. A lot of times investors will just ask for an observation, right, and not a full board seat, which I think is smart as an early stage investor for a couple of reasons. One, if you're not a board member, then you don't have the same fiduciary obligations that a board member has. Two, if you're in VC and you have tons and tons of portfolio companies, this is a smaller investment, it's a seed level investment for you, you might not have the time to devote to this business that a board member would want to devote. Cuban's really good about this. Whenever Cuban invests in our early stage companies, he takes a board seat, or he might even take a board right. The right to take a a board seat, excuse me, he generally takes a board observer seat, or he might take a board right, which means, which is the right to appoint a seat in his name or or for someone that represents his fund, but not necessarily doing it until he absolutely has to. So I think that's a great way of doing it. Board observers can be valuable because it's not necessarily about the vote, but it's about the discussions in the room. I like the way that uh, that Jason Mendelson wrote that. However, or excuse me, that the entrepreneur wrote that. However, having too many people can get to be confusing. We have situations we have seven or nine member boards with a couple of board observers for an early stage company. It's just too much. 
you should not be investing that much brain power into making decisions for a C-level company. All right, Aaron, let's move over to, oh, real quick, it talks about how much options should you give these guys. At the top of page 70, they mentioned 0.25% to 0.5%, which is exactly in line with what we suggest and we generally give our uh, tell our clients to offer. And we do have a blog on that, on how much equity should you give your advisors, which I'll talk about giving your equity to board members. So we're comfortable with those percentages. Okay, the next one, protective provisions. I feel like, Aaron, when we're negotiating a Series A term sheet, we probably spend the chunk of our negotiation time on these provisions right here. And they have 11 of them listed on pages 70 to 71. And these are pretty typical. Um, I don't know that we have time to walk through every single one of these, but I think it would be uh, helpful to mention them and then talk about the key ones that we generally try to negotiate. So there's on page 71, let me just walk, uh, let me just describe them. Then I want to talk about a few of them, Aaron, and then you pick out the ones you want to talk about as well. Change the terms of, well, protective provisions. What does protective provisions mean? Aaron, you want to explain that? Yeah. Um, protective provisions generally are things that the company cannot do without the uh, affirmative consent or approval of either the investor appointed board member or um the a certain percentage of those investors yeah that's important it's not every single investor right that would make it nearly impossible to perform corporate governance however either a certain percentage or their board member and these things might be split right aaron into class a you know series a preferred approval or series a preferred director approval right. But we've got change the terms of stock owned by the VC. Again, these are the things that you generally need a higher level of consent. Essentially, uh, they do. have a veto right. That's correct. It. So they, you can't, they, they, or you couldn't do these things without their approval. Change the terms of stock owned by the VC. Authorize the creation of more stock, which is basically means issue capital or increase the employee pool. Issue stock senior equal to the VCs, which again is basically raise more capital. Buy back any common stock, sell the company. We talked about sell the company. I mean, you're generally going to get a larger uh, level of consent for selling the company. Change the certificate of incorporation or bylaws. When would you change the certificate of incorporation or bylaws, Aaron? I mean, usually you're changing the the COI when you are authorizing additional stock. So next round. Yeah. So this is just another way of saying you can't do another capital right. raise. Or if you're changing the the rights or preferences of an existing yeah, so a lot of it, some some of these could be seen to be redundant, but I understand why they have them separated. We'll see why. Also, certificate of incorporation. Remember, in Texas, we call that certificate of formation. Change the size of board of directors. Pay or declare dividend. Borrow money. Declare bankruptcy or license away the IP of the company, effectively selling the company without the VC's content. All right, Aaron. A couple of these I want to go through. One, it says buy back any common stock. You can't ever buy back common stock. No, you can. You just have to get the approval of the VC. What's the typical carve out we see in this? Uh, usually, it's if if it's pursuant to a restricted stock purchase agreement or other sort of vesting mechanism. Um, then that's going to be permitted. So I believe we've talked about vesting, but just to make sure. All of the founders and all of the employees should have some sort of vesting mechanism with their shares or their grants. And the early stage founders will generally have been granted their shares for some nominal price. So they actually own everything, but they're subject to repurchase from the company so that if that founder exits the company prior to the meeting the different vesting criteria, then the company will be able to repurchase some or all of those shares. 
So when it says that you can't buy back any common stock, the carve-out is actually in the full paragraph above, other than pursuant to equity incentive agreements with service providers, giving the company the right to repurchase shares upon termination of services. And just to clarify, the point of this protective provision is usually because the preferred equity has a liquidation preference. And so you don't want, you know, if if the company decides, hey, we're going to start buying back some of the equity of our founders, even though they haven't left, they're still here. We're, basically, you don't want to give the company the mechanism by which they can give some of the founders a, a payday ahead of the liquidation preference right. of the preferred. Right. You don't want them spending the company's money on things that's either not building the company or putting money back in the investor's pocket. So let's talk about, Aaron, sell the company, authorize the creation of more stock, or license away the IP of the company. Whenever we see these, we always try to put in a floor on these things. And this usually works. Sometimes we get a lot of pushback from it. It's it's really not market when we do this. I don't know why more people don't do it. But let's just simplify it to sell the company. So you have to get the VC's approval to sell the company. And let's just say that uh, the VC invested a $10 million valuation and you get to a $50 million exit. And this, I'm, hypothetically speaking, the VCs had a real poor year or you're part of a vintage that's just a really nasty crop of portfolio companies and you're the only real winner and they're looking for you to be that 100x. And you get a $50 million offer and you go say, okay, guys, we're ready to sell. And the VC is looking at you and on paper, you're a 5x return and they're hoping that you're going to get to a 50x return so you can return all their fun. And they say no. Yeah, I think, you know, putting on my, you know, reasonable man hat, I would like to think that if the VC is not having a great year or, you know, the fund is not doing that well, that they would see a 5x return and say, great, that's going to cover some of our losses but maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe they really are holding out for a hundred X return. Um, and so if you can somehow negotiate and say, you know, put into the protective provisions, if the company wants to sell and it's above $50 million valuation, then they don't need to get the VC's approval. That makes things go a lot smoother. Every time we've brought this up, we've been able to success, successfully implement it. It just depends at what threshold level. Typically, we'll start with a 3 or a 5x return. So if the investment value, if the pre-money value is $20 million, we like to insert a clause that says, all right, we have to get VC approval to sell the business or to raise additional capital unless it's above a 3x or $60 million or a 5x or $100 million. At that point in time, we don't need their approval to do so. And there's usually a number to which the VCs are willing to approve. But this puts in a threshold or a floor above which the VC just can't arbitrarily uh, deny it. Now, let's just say that we did have that $50 million offer and it was a reasonable offer and the VC saying no. You might have other remedies. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind here is that normally if we try to put this floor in, it's not uncommon for the VC to come back and say, okay, but it has to be within two years. That's correct. Because that, that's true. you know you don't want to be holding on to an investment for ten years, and then they say, "Okay, great, we're going to sell for fifty million when you invested a ten million." Yeah, if it's been you know ten years, that might not be the return they're looking for. This is the reason why it's helpful to have experienced startup counsel to negotiate these nuanced points. You know, and I, I feel that the democratization of startup docs 
has had this effect to where people say, well, this is NVCA standard. And so founders just say, okay, it's NVCA standard. But the NVCA standard is being set forth by generally counsel to investors. And I don't have any problem with NVCA standard docs. They're fantastic. But there are nuanced points like this one, right? Like putting in a floor or a minimum exit threshold upon above which you do not need VC approval that are not in those docs. And you're not going to get that unless you have good experience counsel on your side. So it's important to do that. Um, you know, a- another one here is the... Uh, what was the other one? Oh, the issuing debt in excess of $100,000. Again, that's pretty standard, $100,000. But if we're 18 months past your investment round and you're doing $150,000 a month in revenue and you want to go to a new market and you need $750,000 or a million dollars in a line of credit or a bank loan to do that and you can get a bank loan, boy, do we really want, even if the VC's on board, but do we really want the hassle of having to call a meeting, put together a resolution, hopefully it's not during the summer when the VC's traveling, Right, because they're they're spending the summer in Colorado, and we got to get their signature on things, and I'm exaggerating the issues because we we the VCs that we work with in general they're fantastic. We very we do get activist or you know uh, concerned shareholder issues, but they're usually one off shareholders. It's generally not institutional, so we don't have a whole lot of problem with institutional investors. But issuing debt in excess of a hundred thousand dollars, I don't know if you're an A level company, that is way too low way too low of a threshold. You can usually negotiate that up. I also thought it was interesting what the entrepreneur said here on the next page when when uh, he or she was going through, all right, this is what I think about each of these. And it was pay or declare a dividend. And the comment here was, you'll never have to worry about this. Right. No. there. You know, If you are in a position where you're able to pay or declare a dividend, that money is usually going right back into the company. So these protective provisions, these 11... Uh, we rarely see more than these. Every once in a while you do. You you might get specific individual carve-outs or references to individuals in the company. You can't do this or you can't appoint this person or, or raise founder salaries, stuff, stuff like that. But we typically see these 11 at a seed level. You may, might see five or six, right? They're usually not so uh, so thorough. But these are pretty common. Let's talk about who has protective rights and multiple classes of protective rights. Some of the most excruciating drafting that Aaron and I go through or wrangling or herding, if you're talking about herding sheep, is when you have multiple classes of investors and they have different protective provisions. The drafting can be very complicated and then trying to execute on that drafting, right, or operate the business can be even more cumbersome. So if possible, get everyone into the same class. Not always possible. But if possible, or not necessarily the same class, because they're going to have different classes, but right. the same protective provisions. Group them for protective provision purposes. So you can say, we need a majority of the Series A and Series B in order to do this. That'll make your life significantly easier. Majority of the Series A and Series B combined. Acting together. Yeah, not, together not, as a single class. Not a majority of Series A and a majority of That's Series correct. B. That's correct. Acting together as a single class. Yes. They'll be separate because they'll have different original issue prices. might even have different liquidation preferences. But for voting purposes, try and keep them together. I would rather give in on other things, redemption rights, maybe even liquidation preferences, because mechanically having those guys vote together as one can really, really simplify things. You get to that next round, you get to that exit. All right. Let's talk about drag. Yep. You know, I thought they did a really good job on drag here. They really got in depth more so than I would have expected them to. Typically, 
we look at drag as the ability of a group or a class of shareholders to drag everyone into it. Now, this is important because you're just never going to get 100% of the people to agree to anything. Nope. Even if you have the best deal in the world, you might not be able to track down that one guy who lost his share certificates and is now a yogi in you know Nepal and is not checking his email anymore. Oh, a little throwback to Silicon Valley. That's right. Nice. That's right. So if you're trying to get Ehrlich to sign anything. So drag along generally gives the right of the company to drag classes of shareholders. But you can break that down. You can make it class-based drag along. Drag them to do what? Generally sell the business, right? Usually you're looking at selling the business or selling the equity. So if you're selling the business, that means we're going to drag them all into an approval situation where they're all going to prove us, or at least a majority consent is going to prove us to sell all the assets of the business. Or if it's an equity position, we're going to drag them into selling their equity. Or even you could have someone kicking and screaming, I don't want to sell, I don't want to sell, I don't want to sell. But if that person has signed a drag provision or an agreement that has drag provision in it, then that person will then have to sell their equity. And there's been times when we've gone through this where we can't track down that investor, we can't track down that shareholder, but because the documents say that shareholder has agreed to do this and we have their signature saying that they agreed to the drag, then the attorneys on the buying side or on the capital raise side are willing to say, okay, well, this person has to sell their equity. So uh, drag can be really important Generally, what are the typical drag terms that we see, Aaron? I mean, usually it's uh, it's structured as if the board of directors approves, and then they receive, you know, X percentage of shareholders also approve the transaction. Then the remaining shareholders are required to vote in favor of the transaction. But we also, it's not uncommon to see a dollar threshold put in there as well. When he says a majority of the shareholders, we see it in two ways. And it's either one, just a majority of the shareholders approve, so then everyone approves. If you're an investor and your class only owns 10% of the business, you're probably going to want a separate drag approval provision, which we generally see, which is not uncommon. So it could say, if the board approves it, like Aaron said, it's always the first step, and common, a majority of the common approves, and a majority of Series A approves, then all of common and all of Series A approve. A really aggressive term would say that Series A can drag common in. A little less aggressive would say Series A plus the founder can drag common. So that's a way that a founder can kind of retain some control without still having control, right? As the founder in Series A, we negotiated that a couple years ago, Aaron, with one of our companies that was doing really, really well. They had a very strong-minded founder, the investors were not going to come in without getting a good chunk of protective provision. So what we started to do was align up the investor and the and the founder. Because that way the founder said, you know what? I don't want to do this. Even though I only own 30% of common at this point in time, but I don't want to do this transaction, then you can't. But once the Series A did, it was actually two classes. So once Series A and Series B did and the founder did, then everyone got dragged in. All right. Last thing, this turned into a long one. Uh, conversion. Conversion is obviously really important with liquidation preferences. If you have a non-participating preferred liquidation preference, then the shareholders own it who have that non-participating liquidation preference have the right to either take their 1x or whatever the liquidation preference is or convert into common and take pro rata. So it comes in there. But as far as preferred converting into common for any other reason other than IPO, which we rarely see, do we ever see, you ever see anyone convert? Yeah, no, that's what I was about to say is yeah, we negotiate these all the time, but in terms of actually seeing it come into play, 
we have not seen it only at exits, right? Well, yeah, and only at IPOs, you know. And if you're gonna IPO, chances are you're not still with us, right? We just right. don't have the capacity to take a company right. public. But and if you're IPOing, everyone's usually gonna be on board for that. However, important terms to understand and negotiate. I liked how they gave the example of the IPO triggers being at different thresholds. And that could be material. So you want to make sure that those thresholds are lined up. And then also uh, on the conversion, they brought up the point that in extreme situations, preferred might want to convert into common so that they can now control common. And I can see that happening. You know, we have a distressed, one of our investors, Aaron, has a distressed portfolio company to where something like that has been discussed because they needed to make a move. And they might have to convert into common order to control common. So that's where it comes in, comes into play. At the seed level, probably not even negotiating that. At the A level, you're really forward thinking, which is important, but know that it's just not going to come up anytime soon. Right. All right. So that's chapter five, control terms of the term sheet. Appreciate you listening in. Uh, join us next week. We'll be releasing this on Monday for chapter six of Venture Deals. In closing, you can find show notes, which includes references, defined terms, and related content on our website, VelaWoodLaw.com. Blog, go to blog, then podcast. Then this is the Office Hours podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at Vela Wood Law. Follow us on Instagram at Vela Wood. If you have questions or comments, email us podcasts at VelaWoodLaw.com. And finally, and most importantly, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Look for the Office Hours podcast and check out our other podcasts. That's all for today. Thanks. All Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at